Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and today I'm speaking to Stephen Treasurer, a partner at Oakley Capital. He works on Oakley Capital Investments. That's an investment trust that offers a fairly concentrated portfolio of private equity holdings across three stated sectors of technology, consumer and education. Like many of the other private equity trusts, Oakley has had a very good pandemic, at least in terms of share price returns. But like much of the rest of the sector, its shares continue to trade on a pretty big discount to the value of underlying assets. So, Stephen, thanks for joining. Um, I thought, uh, given not all of our listeners will be uh, 100% kind of familiar with the private equity trusts and how they work, it'd be great just to start off um, if you could briefly take us through kind of what your process is, what kind of companies you look for, and you know, what do you think makes Oakley stand out from the various other private equity trusts that UK investors can get hold of? Well, thanks for having me on, David, and uh, and yes, very happy to kind of um, initially kind of introduce Oakley Capital at a high level. So, I guess first of all, just to be clear, you've got Oakley Capital, the manager, so it, it manages funds investing in or taking controlling stakes in fast-growing, medium-sized companies in Europe. And that's obviously medium-sized private, fast-growing companies, medium-sized private companies in Europe. Um, And OCI, as we refer to it, or Oakley Capital Investments, is the listed investment trust. And as you describe, that invests solely in the funds managed by Oakley. So it is a... Um, I guess a, a listed direct PE play, similar to the likes of a you know a three I or um, APAT Global or an HDT. They're the, it, it's quite a small listed universe, as you know, in terms of you know direct direct PE plays, listed PE plays. Um, and then in terms of kind of overall themes and how we go about our process and you know if 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 I was allowed to kind of point out the kind of things that kind of most differentiate us, you. You mentioned the kind of sectors in Europe. I mean, there are you know many ways to try to get access to this. It's harder in the public markets, which I guess is the appeal of, of private equity. But in terms of technology, for us, that is or has developed into being um, infrastructure as a service. So we happen to invest significantly in, in web hosting. Certainly, have had a lot of success in that area in the past. Um, and software as a service, and that can be in a broad range of ways, but typically it's software that provides small businesses with a kind of, you know, an, an, an unmet need um, and, and particularly trying to build a kind of local champions for, for small businesses in Spain, for example, or um, for online merchants in Germany, to give you two, you know, kind of random examples. Consumer, you mentioned, for us, that is typically consumer digital. So kind of online marketplaces, price comparison websites or property portals, and then education. And education for us has been the kind of full gambit of education, starting with private schools back in 2013, but it's now includes after-school tutoring, preschool education, um, vocational education, and even you know kind of compliance training within within certain industries. So they're the kind of sectors, pan-European particularly, we've had particular success. Not in the UK, but but in Germany, Spain, and Italy are probably the kind of predominant geographies. And and now we have offices in in at least two of those in, in uh, Munich and in Milan. Um, what's so special about our approach? 
because of course most listeners will go well well done you know everyone wants a piece of tech consumer digital education <laughs> and there's a lot of dry powder chasing those deals mm. um and so good luck you know you've done well up until now but how do you continue to to source and to source at kind of interesting prices um and so there's one if there's one takeaway from our chat is is how we kind of manage to do that um and that predominantly revolves around the fact that we work with business founders incredibly well. We were set up by an entrepreneur. The first farm was launched in 2007. That's when the listed investment company um, floated as well. Um, and his big kind of complaint was, you know, financial partners just don't get what it's like to be an entrepreneur and the challenges you face and what you need support-wise from a financial partner. And so he set out to basically establish Oakley as the financial partner he felt he never had. Um, and whilst that doesn't sound like rocket science, I grant you, you know, kind of relationship-led investing uh, and being empathetic to the needs of an entrepreneur, whilst a lot has changed and institutionalized about Oakley over the next kind of however many years it's been, that has remained at the heart of our business. And, and, and how does that kind of manifest itself is that um, we have now backed some like 20 plus business founders uh, many of whom have, you know, have not been put off by the process such that they've gone on to, to do repeat opportunities with us, some now, you know, three or four times. They've actually invested themselves in the Oakley Fund subsequently to have, uh, of the capital we manage in the funds, nearly 200 million euros of that has been committed by the, by the, by the managers, the, the, the entrepreneurs, um, which is a great you know, future alignment of interest. Some of these individuals are so relatively wealthy now, they don't really need our capital and our help, but actually they, they recognize and respect what we deliver when it comes to, you know, kind of putting together an investment and, and choose to, to work with us kind of going forward. What does this all mean? It means that so many of our deals were the first private equity into a company. Uh, which is key. So we're expanding the, the opportunities within the kind of private um, equity realm. Secondly, there's probably some kind of complexity about the deal. You know, the, you know this is a business founder working incredibly hard. They've, they've achieved a certain amount of success. These are profitable businesses, but they are now deep within the weeds of this business. They've got aspirations to do, maybe to do M&A, to maybe to in, internationalize, maybe to digitalize. Um, um, but they... They lack the senior management support around them. They don't want to necessarily exit at that point, um, but they do want, you know, kind of capital to maybe realize some of their holding, but to help them, you know, kind of grow to the next stage. So the business, you know, it may not have proper management information systems, may not even have proper accounts. Um, it certainly doesn't have the infrastructure to, to support a proper competitive process to either float or be sold to one of the big, large private equity sponsors. And this is where we thrive. So we are coming in at a point where it's messy, for want of a better word. And because we can deal with that mess and kind of navigate the risk associated with it, we get in a really attractive entry multiples. And so we're unearthing hidden gems, companies that may not have even formally touched the financial services sector until now, um, and it, growing them, developing. We're often, you know, often most, most of our assets get sold to the larger private equity firms, you know, once we've developed you know, a business of, of kind of greater, greater scale. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe to put some numbers around that, I'm going to mention the fact that we are kind of, you know, 
90% of deals are kind of with a first kind of primary capital in. 75% of our deals, we are, um, it's proprietary, i.e., you know, we have sourced an opportunity ourselves through our network, through our relationships, and it's not coming to us via a, you know, kind of competitive or intermediated process. Um, and then I think the kind of the best stat we can give, and we can give a whole bunch of these, but um, our average en entry multiple into a, an asset is about um, 9.3 times EV EBITDA over the course of our history. And when I tell you that the average EBITDA growth of our existing kind of Oakley portfolio companies is about 35%, the fact that we're able to access those that kind of quality of companies at those kind of prices is one of the great appeals. And actually, even today, if, if you were to buy a share in OCI, and those that have all know this, this stat well, but there's 22 companies you get exposure to across broadly, evenly split across those three sectors. Their average growth, I've already mentioned over the last 12 months, 35%. We're currently holding them at 12 and a bit times. Um, so, you know, kind of relatively conservatively reflecting the fact that we don't tend to move the multiple much beyond the level that we purchase the companies at. Um, and then I guess to reassure um, your listeners around kind of, well, that's great, but how have you really fared in the last kind of 12 months when, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of um, P activity and a lot of people chasing tech and consumer digital education? I mean, actually, our average entry multiple it is about the same as our long-term average, but actually the growth rates of these companies is is actually higher than our average across the, the 22. So, so things, you know, kind of, we're still proving the repeatability of our model. Don't get us wrong. That's exactly what keeps us awake at night is our ability to continue to source these, these you know, really exciting opportunities at, at, at great prices, um, but so far so good. So as you, as you said, you, you perhaps get that, mess discount as i'm now going to quote the phrase <laughs> yeah um, i regret saying that yeah but um, <laughs> but um as you mentioned there's been lots of money chasing deals and i suppose one uh, one interesting aspect of oakley and to be fair many of the private equity trusts is there has been a focus on kind of companies with fairly significant digital element which perhaps has helped um, many of those trusts have quite good 2020 when we had various lockdowns. Yeah, but I mean, you, you've perhaps covered some of this, but are you are you not concerned that the you know some of those some of that growth is borrowed now from the future and you you yeah that's a good a, question a less appealing outlook than you you maybe did before. Yeah, um, yeah. Look, it's it's a great question. Did we just bring forward a number of years of performance that gave a stellar kind of twenty twenty one, thanks to the kind of um, the impact of COVID? Now, there's no doubt that there's you know in a, in a couple of the companies that there would have been some outperformance, and has certainly brought us a year or two forward in the in the business plan. Um, but actually, in some cases, it is essentially. It's just triggered the level of penetration that we hoped would start to kind of grow and build. It's it's introduced a solution to people, and we've and we've seen that actually in some cases, some you know we we've we've outside of lockdown, we've continued to kind of keep the pace of of growth. So there's a mixture. Some you know are clearly not going to keep doubling in in value every in doubling in size every year. 
Um, but what, what examples to kind of give you? Um, let's think about something that, you know, is an out and out, you know, kind of, kind of COVID beneficiary. So for example, Jumondo is a, um, an application which provides online fitness classes in Germany. Now, clearly as more people, less people were going to the gym, more people were looking for at home solutions and sure enough, you know, the, um, the subscriber numbers have doubled from 250,000 to, to 500,000. But actually, more and more people are now being drawn in as a result to permanently stay, you know, to, to using this as a solution. It's a lower cost solution. It's a private solution. It actually, you know, seems to um, to suit and be a beneficiary to to women, which which is it, the service is largely kind of focused on. Um, and also, this was an incredibly nascent industry. I mean, we're barely scratching the surface of this solution in Germany with a leader by, you know, a long way. Our cost of acquisition comes down as we, you know, get a, 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 um, a bigger, you know, kind of market presence. And whilst we may not be able to maintain 100% growth, um, we are still seeing significant growth levels as a result of this solution ga gaining great attraction, you know, kind of the, the impacts of COVID. Now, there are other companies where, and actually, you know, I, I can I talk about some of the, you know, kind of big drivers of NAV growth uh, later if you wish, but let's take, for example, online education. Now, you'd think the big driver of, on, of our performance in online education would have been the fact that students couldn't go to a campus. Or if you wanted to come to Europe to study for a degree, you now need another solution. And so IU Group, it, you know, would have been one of the big beneficiaries of that. However, whilst we may have picked up some growth around that, the reason that that this and you know other businesses like it, it's it's solving a it's solving a a need, and people are becoming more aware of that solution. Maybe because of COVID. In this case. The majority of the students it, it takes on are 29 to 30 year olds. That's the average age. The majority of them come from non-academic backgrounds. Again, it's a German business, but it's but it's proving to be an international solution. They want the flexibility of studying for a degree now, whether because they don't have one or because they want a more relevant one. They have jobs, they have families, um, and they have budget constraints, and this is a this is a great solution. And so their student numbers have grown sixfold since we bought it to over eighty thousand, and we bought it in two thousand and eighteen. And that growth is continuing and continuing, you know, kind of regardless of you know lockdown. I think people are becoming more aware of it as a solution. I think more people are looking to retrain. Funnily enough, have taken a different view of life, maybe post-COVID, <laughs> and so actually there are plenty of triggers and drivers that are that have gained momentum, maybe because of COVID, but it, but it's very much kind of continued thereafter. And there's so much ground for us to make up. I mean, um, car insurance. <laughs> I'm terribly boring on car insurance. But the, <laughs> the UK, the UK now, eighty percent of car insurance is arranged online. It's a very mature market. Um, you know, we're all familiar with names like Money Supermarket and, and Go Compare as examples. In Italy, and we and we are invested in the number one money um, price comparison website in in, uh, in Italy called Facile. Um, in Italy, before lockdown, 12% of car insurance was arranged online. I mean, the the 
the internet penetration and adoption of digital models in you know southern europe and western europe is still some way behind the uk uh, and to some extent germany there is loads of ground to make up now covid may have helped you know drive some of that because people then they didn't have the option of going in person to their broker in the high street who they've gone to for many many years and so they've started to consider in that period using a digital solution but the adoption rate you know might have increased to 15% i mean there is still so much runway um for for the companies and particularly when that's what we're doing we're often we're not investing in new and fancy unproven tech this is very much stuff that we you and i are very familiar with we're just investing in regions that are where we're investing behind that digital disruption curve and um Obviously, not all of your portfolio was kind of aided. I mean, this feels like going very far back now, but in 2020, not all of your um, holdings were kind of immune to the uh, the effects of lockdowns. And I always think one of your better known holdings, at least among people in the UK, will be uh, Time Out. Um, how are things looking for Time Out now? Yeah, well, um, just... Um... In case anyone's not too familiar with it, we invested in Time Out when it was back in the days when it was a essentially a magazine. We invested in it with the opportunity we felt to digitize Time Out, to take this great global brand, this wonderful authority on what to do and where to go in, in cities around the world. And we we took a what was a 10 million a month audience in what was largely then um, subscriber, you know, subscription magazine. Um, and grew it to be, um, you know, to have a proper website, an online presence, social media, etc., and an audience that grew up to about 70 million eyeballs um, a month. And in doing so, to drive to drive advertising revenue and to you know to kind of create a, a profitable business. Um, so there was a certain level of success around that. The unexpected success came from Time Out Portugal, and for those that that are unfamiliar with it, with the with the timeout market in Lisbon, became a phenomenal success. It was essentially, they devised this idea of creating the physical version of timeout. So the best restaurateurs, bars, and you know, kind of cultural experiences were given a permanent you know, kind of kitchen um, or space in this, in this large space, um, 33,000 square foot ground floor space in, in Lisbon. Um, and it went on to be an enormous success. Four million people vi visit this market a year. It's kind of democratizing fine dining. It's, um, you know, there's three Michelin stars, for example, within the market. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal um, and was, in, was set to kind of generate about six million of EBITDA alone as a market, you know, kind of going into COVID. So that was, the, you know, but luck or otherwise, that was the kind of model that we really, you know, began to focus on. And kind of pre-COVID, we opened five more markets. Um, and then, of course, COVID came to shut all the markets. And clearly, um, our content, which was directed towards how to go out, you know, became less relevant. It's not much we could do about the markets other than, you know, kind of control our costs as much as best we could. We re reorientated time out to be time in and produce homebound content. And remarkably, the audience actually stayed relatively static, which talks to the power of, of the brand. And in answer to your question, you know, post lockdown, what does life look like? 
Well, as you can imagine, travel and leisure advertising has returned. So the kind of media business is now contributing again at, a, at an EBITDA level on a, on a monthly basis since kind of July. The markets are all back open again. We actually opened a new one during lockdown in, um, uh, in Dubai, um, which has been phenomenally successful. Um, and you know they are. We, we didn't. We didn't have them open for too long before we had to close them. But you know, signs are they're you know returning to kind of prior COVID levels. We're starting to see them um, contribute again um, from from properly profitability um, basis. And we've kind of strengthened our balance sheet in the period as well. Um, so you know we've we've got strong high level of cash. We've got markets kind of open and starting to operate again. A footfall returning. Um, and probably the most exciting thing is the number of landlords and real estate players that are now approaching us to engage with us about the opportunity to, to open new markets. So the so the the approach we're taking is what we're calling a management agreement where a real estate player pays for all the capex of the, the market build and we are responsible for the curation and the hiring of general managers uh, and we get a fixed or a minimum um EBITDA, which is an attractive level, kind of a you know, minimum of about 1.5 million pounds or, the, or there or thereabouts, um, at least. Um, and we have, a, we have a really big pipeline. The challenge for us is kind of getting around these countries to get these, um, um, these sites to kind of, you know, contract completion. Um, but that's our kind of key focus for the growth of this business going forward. As you say, the, the performance has been um, strong, but I suppose one question mark prospective investors may have uh, with this trust and again with other private equity trusts is you have these very persistent um, quite substantial discounts you know which might draw in bargain hunters but people might also ask you know why why are you on a double digit discount if you've had you know 50 percent return yeah. over the last yeah. year or so yeah. yeah i mean we've discussed this before but how how would you explain that and do you do you realistically expect that to ever kind of get shaken off or is that just kind of nature of the beast? Oh, look, I mean, I think the two, the two things I'd immediately say is that whoever you speak to, Dave, you, you get a different answer to this. Depending on the company, you know, depending on the trust, depending on your size, depending on, there's always, you know, a difference. A difference. And it's a little bit like there's no smoke without fire. Because there is a discount, I'm now going to come up with some reasons to why one exists, and it slightly perpetuates <laughs> it. You know, do I think it will close? Well, I'm a, I'm, I'll own up to be to being a kind of an optimist. Um, so I think it will. And rather than trotting out, you know, kind of a range of of reasons why discounts persist, because funnily enough, there's actually some relatively new new investment trusts um, and some that are kind of quasi private equity or crossover funds that are actually trading at premium and, and many of them are sitting in cash. So there's it does imply that there's some kind of inefficiency here at work rather than some you know deep underlying issue. Um, I mean I I would suggest that commentators that focus on investment trusts in many ways perpetuate the the prevalence and the existence and the, the stubbornness of, of, of discounts. And, and the reason I say that is that, you know, it, you're typically told to evaluate an investment trust on its, on its value. Like, how, what's its discount and how does that discount compare to the long run average? Um, and asking the question as to whether, the, you know, creating 
not an air of suspicion probably overstates it, but that question mark, you know, why might, you know, a company trade at a discount? And then, of course, as the discount narrows, they say, well, actually, it's looking less value now because of its long run average is higher than this. And so, you know, the um, you then attract sellers and then the discount widens again. I mean, to give you a great example of that, you know, in June um, of this year, so our, in theory, our discount when I don't know the exact numbers, but went from a 25% discount in January, February, when we announced, you know, the kind of NAV to, to the end of December 2020. Um, and by June, the discount had in theory narrowed to 10%. And at that point in time, there was a couple of articles in the press saying, you know, OCI has had a great run um, and the discount has narrowed to 10%. Um, so, you know, it doesn't represent the value it previously offered. I mean, uh, well, obviously, <laughs> you can sense frustration. I'm, you know, kind of <laughs> sticking in my, my throat. But first thing to point out is that was a discount to a NAV in December. You know, we, we had in that time, you know, the NAV is continuing to grow. I've recognized that the, the stock market investors don't have perfect visibility to that, but they do have the, you know, they do have our track record. They do have a lot of visibility around what we're investing in and the trends that we're investing behind. The likelihood that our NAV is declining is incredibly unlikely. And so to suggest that the discount, the in reality, as we then went on to prove when we announced our NAV, um, that the NAV had grown 11, 12% over that period. And funnily enough, the discount hadn't actually narrowed. Um, it was just an old NAV. And, you know, here, here we are again. I mean, it's just the mentality that you acquire a business based upon the, or, sorry, a trust on the basis of, of, it, of its discount. I, I think it's completely kind of missing the point. You, and look, I, I, I should push this because it's one of the reasons why many people are drawn to OCI because of the value. It is not the reason I think you buy any investment trust, but certainly not because that's all about market timing and that's very hard to do. And also, mm. you know, we have less control over the discount and the inefficiencies a discount to, to NAV that a share trades at and the inefficiency of the stock market. What we have control over, sorry, more control over, is the performance of the funds. That's the great thing about private equity. When majority holds, we sit on the board, we're active around the strategy, we can create value, particularly around, you know, kind of buy and build. And we've got a greater control over, over our outcomes. The outcome that matters is the NAV growth. If you look at you know, what the big drivers of or the best performing PE funds, I would suggest that the level of discount or premium, there's no correlation. Plus, it probably it doesn't even correlate to the dividend they pay. This is an entire, this is a capital growth play. That's why you should be attracted to listed PE mm -hmm. um, and to OCI. And that, fun enough, is the, big, the biggest driver of of shareholder returns. Now, I do accept that, and we hope that you know discounts close over time. And I recognise that you know if you can buy OCI on a you know 10, 15, 20 percent discount to NAV, then you know that's an extra kicker to the performance if that discount closes. But actually, it's a misnomer if you think that the the current you know the discount of OCI has closed over the period. It hasn't. Because the NAV is still continuing to grow, it's just you haven't been updated. And and so, I mean, one of the things we we recognise we've got to be part of the solution here. So we are moving to quarterly NAV updates to try to give a bit more transparency over mm -hmm. the course of the year. 
Um, you know, we continue to do buybacks to kind of provide that confidence in, you know, no one knows more about the quality of the underlying portfolio and how they're performing than the manager and the board of, of OCI. And they can continue to demonstrate that by buying and cancelling the shares, returning capital that way. I think that's that's quite compelling. And the more we communicate and the more we have to tell the market about our progress, um, the the better. But but I repeat, you know, the reason you buy OCI is because you have an understanding of how we source and originate. You like the kind of areas we invest in and you believe that the trends we invest behind will continue to drive profitable growth um, in the, you know, the 22 portfolio companies that, that we are invested in today. One, one frustration that some of our readers do have um, specifically with, well, with Oakley and with some other names um, is that they do want to buy it, but some of them on certain platforms struggle to because it's on the specialist fund segment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would, could you see Oakley kind of moving to the main market at some point in the future? Yeah, it is, it is absolutely our aspiration. So we are, we unfortunately didn't, we couldn't qualify for the premium list at the time we moved off AIM. Um, so the next best option um, certainly is, as we were advised, was to move to a specialist fund segment and at least signal and actually adopt the, the kind of terms and governance um, and articles that you would as if you were a premium list so that we were kind of prepared to make that move. Um, it is frustrating that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of platforms where you can invest in a specialist fund mm, segment. Yeah. There are two um, where you can't. And I, and I know that's been a source of frustration for people. And we have lobbied those, um, you know, those um, brokers or platforms to, to change. Um, but it is our, you know, kind of medium term intention um, to kind of make that move to the premium list. Yeah. And just moving back to something you, you alluded to earlier, there's lots of, at the minute, there's lots of money everywhere chasing investments and private equity has been a real part of the kind of M&A binge this year. Um, would, would you expect that to kind of pause as we as we move on into next year? Or, you know, what are you seeing at the minute? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I, I, I think that it is, I think it's slightly overstated in that kind of, because I guess the media, you know, really picks up on, you know, kind of the public to private, you know, private equity, big, bad private equity, scooping up our, you know, listed assets, taking them away from the access of the the kind of man or woman on the street into kind of, you know, the dark arts of kind of private equity. Um, I mean, I guess just to address that point, I think it's actually the same funds backing both. I mean, whether it's a public equity fund or a private equity fund, it's still insurance companies, pension funds. It is still your and I money into into both angles. Um, so I think it gets a lot more, you know, kind of attention and sort of slightly overstates the kind of size of the kind of private equity binge. That said, so if you look at the numbers in Europe, um, there's been about 210 billion. That's roughly the runway for the year that's been invested in, in in private equity opportunities in Europe so far this year, or sorry, in, in probably in totality this year. And you're right, to some extent, that that is probably that is probably an all-time high in in Europe. Um, 
you know, kind of certainly exceed last year was 124 billion. And in 2018, it was 154 billion in kind of, you know, kind of European buyout funds. So, so it is, it is higher, but also, I guess, you know, that is across a, that is everything, you know, that's kind of angel investing venture, growth capital buyout funds like us and, and the kind of big large PE. There's also been a lot of divesting. So actually, in many cases, there's also been a lot of transacting between the private equity funds themselves. So, you know, the actual, there's been 190 million billion of divestments, probably selling assets to other private equity sponsors or, or to listings. Um, the other thing I kind of say is, is that whilst these, you know, they might sound like big numbers, private equity on a global scale is still a relatively small asset class. It gets a lot of attention because I think there is an outdated kind of air of suspicion around it because of the kind of vulture nature of kind of 80s, 80s private equity. I mean, most private equity now is a force for good. I mean, I think we created, the portfolio companies that we invested in created 400 jobs last year when we're not a big fund, you know, it's kind of 22 companies. I think people still have a mentality of it's about asset stripping and cost cutting. Well, actually, in most cases, the growth companies that need capital to help them kind of grow. We're about growing the top line, not not shrinking the kind of cost base. Um, I'll get around to actually asking your question, Dave, which is, <laughs> do I think, do, my apologies, do I think it's going to grow? And um, I, I don't think it can grow at the rates you saw it grow, you know, year on year, principally because there isn't, whilst the whilst the funds raised within private equity are continuing to grow because performance drives more allocation to private equity drives more investing in private companies and more companies are being drawn into the kind of private equity backed kind of universe um, but you know the level of investing is 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 going to reflect the amount of money coming into private equity, and it's clearly not going to double year on year in perpetuity. But I think levels can be maintained. And why do I think levels can be maintained? Is that there is a increasing number of companies seeking private equity um, and remaining private when they may have, you know, kind of used you know other sources like the public markets in the past. Why is that one? Ten years ago, there wasn't access to private equity. It was a fairly nascent industry, it existed, but not on the scale it does now. Um, and private equity is, is available to back companies, you know, all the way down, all the way through the life cycle. The other thing is, you know, think about what private, a private equity backer offers you in contrast to the public markets. I mean, public markets, and I, and I worked in public markets for 15, 20 years, you know, they are increasingly costly. There's the burden, significant burden of reporting, which grows. There's the burden of regulation. There's a the short-termism of investing and uh, investors. There's a the fact that you've got a choice. You could take one you know, kind of engaged shareholder who you get to pick um, or 100 new shareholders who you don't get to pick, all of whom will have a very different view of life about what the right or wrong thing is for your company. Um, and, and, and most significantly, I think, as a, as a private company making a decision, do you want to give up the information advantage you have by being private, or do you want to tell everyone about your margins? You know how you, what your future plans are for the business, et cetera, et cetera, and hand that directly to your, you know, kind of your peers and and competitors. Um, I think also it's not just about the availability of capital, which drives more people to seek PE backing. It's about that partnership. It's about what I described. I think we do very well. It's 
it's it, it is taking a seat on the board it's providing not just not just capital resource but you know intellectual resource you know helping companies to what we're particularly good at is digitalization creating a subscription nature to the revenue base um helping them move outside their local region to internationalize and particularly MA, which is something you imagine that you know we do well and you know many business founders may may not have done that in the past so there is a increasing number of reasons why the pool of companies grows and shrinks within in in um in public equity and why the level of activity and investment activity with pe um can can be maintained just to, to pick up on one of your points, so you you talk about the, um, I suppose perhaps it's a competitive advantage if you're private and you don't have to kind of show all to your peers and rivals. Um, but isn't isn't that also a problem? I mean, if you're if you're an investor trying to kind of assess what's going on, and equally, I suppose, kind of perhaps in the era of of ESG, you kind of want. You know that old phrase of sunlight's the best disinfectant, that kind of thing. You, you want things out in the open. Surely, surely it is an issue. Well, there's disclosure, there's disclosure, isn't it? What What are you looking to disclose? I mean, I think um, one of the things that we have transformed in the last kind of few years is um, the amount. You know, we will tell you about the companies. Um, to a, to a level that helps you, I think, gauge that as an investor. You don't have to, you know, give up every secret about what the company intends to do and where it tends tends to do it. But we can at least, you know, particularly address some of the issues you you might point on there around, you know, kind of sustainable growth and a sustainable growth, you know, uh, uh, the, the sustainable way in which a company may grow. The thing I would say is the ESG standards that that private companies are being held to or private equity backed is being held to, I would argue, is higher than the public markets. I think there are standards being adopted within PE that is that is leading the way. And that's not just by virtue of what the managers want to do. They are signing up to regulation that is that is, you know, kind of binding them to that. But also, you know, private equity investors are demanding that um, as part of their, you know, kind of criteria. We are committing to our funds, you know, being of a certain, you know, kind of ESG standard, and that we will publish you know, kind of KPIs to our investors on all our portfolio companies and, and you know, track the improvement or otherwise on, you know, kind of 15 different ESG measures plus the manager as well and how it's moving forward. So I actually think the industry is leading the way um, when it comes to kind of ESG. I recognize that's always slightly going to be, should I as an investor, I could go and pick my own companies in the public market, I can get full disclosure and I can make a decision about the kind of pool of companies. And the challenge being I can buy a listed PE firm, which gives me exposure to a whole bunch of of companies, which I'm ne- I, I may never have the same level of disclosure as if I was to buy them independently. I, I, I recognize that. And that is, you know, kind of, one of the challenges, you know, that, that kind of faces us, um, the, uh, and, you know, and I think we're doing more and more to, to address that. I think the, I think the big appeal though is so many of these companies, you don't have the option to get access to some of these business models. In education, there's barely a listed company in education, and if they are, they're on you know kind of incredible multiples. So there is a trade-off, but you are getting access to kind of 
companies and themes that, that sadly, either you can't get access to at the moment in the public market on a single company basis, or you may never. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Um, but um, thank you very much to Stephen for coming on and talking to us. And uh, thank you for listening. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.